1: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: I was talking to one agricultural company about whether it would help to get prisoners to um, collect the harvest and they said there were a number of problems including that um, they might not be very good at it, they might... You know, you need a particular set of skills, especially if you're picking soft fruits, for example. And also, sometimes prisoners run away, which is another problem.
3: Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. I'm Stephanie Flanders, and this week we're investigating why employers on different sides of the Atlantic are considering extreme solutions to their labour shortages but an economy with millions of job vacancies can still somehow be one in which unemployed people struggle to find work. It's all the flip side, the human side, of the supply chain snarl-ups we come across so often these days in the post-COVID economy, with demand still gaining pace and inflation and wages heading up, but at least 4 million fewer people in work today in the US than before the pandemic. Later on, I'll ask Jason Furman, previously President Obama's top economic advisor, to help me solve the riddle of the missing American worker. I'll also hear why agricultural companies in Russia are weighing the pros and cons of using prisoners to bring in the crops. But first we asked US economy reporter Jill Shah to give us a taste of the US jobs market at ground level.
1: Well, I think that right now everybody is hiring, but they're only hiring for low-paying jobs. They're hiring for positions that's only one day a week, two days a week, and people Mm -hmm. cannot make it off of that.
4: That's Precious Briggs, a 32-year-old whose dream of working as a Las Vegas cocktail server came to a sudden halt last April after COVID-19 shut down America's gambling paradise. After restrictions lifted, she expected her former employer to hire her back, but the call never came. Today, Precious is among over 4 million Americans who are unemployed or missing from the labor market compared to pre-pandemic levels. Like many others, she's used up her unemployment and pandemic benefits from the government, and she's getting by on rental assistance, Medicaid, and support from her family. She's hopeful that she'll land a full-time job as Vegas continues to reopen.
1: I definitely want to be in the casino. I love the people, and I love the atmosphere there. So that's definitely something that I love. And it was a dream of mine to leave little Louisiana, my little town, and come here and cocktail and bartend here.
4: When the pandemic arrived in the U.S. last year, millions of American workers abruptly lost their jobs. Now, as the economy recovers, a puzzle has emerged in the labor market. The country had over 10 million job openings at the end of August, according to federal government data, and that number might have increased over the last two months. The job posting website Indeed estimates there may now be as many as 11 million unfilled openings. But while hiring has picked up just recently, with over 500,000 jobs added in October, millions remain unemployed or have left the labor market since the pandemic started. Economists and policymakers are all wondering where they've gone. Here's Julia Pollack, chief economist at the online jobs marketplace ZipRecruiter.
1: The labor market is a matching market uh, where you have to choose something and be chosen by it mm-hmm. and where all the jobs are very, very different and all the workers are very, very different. And so uh, having you know the same number of, of job oh. openings and of unemployed or underemployed workers does not imply that there will be a, a very simple direct match.
4: For example, while job postings in warehousing and transportation and e-commerce related companies have exploded, there's been a decline in brick and mortar retail postings during the pandemic. Workers can't swap out their old job for a new one quickly.
1: It takes time for people to build up the networks and the skills that allow them to move from one industry to another.
4: In interviews, out-of-work Americans describe myriad challenges preventing them from seeking or winning full-time jobs. Like Precious, some say employers are offering fewer hours and lower wages. Others are caring for children or elderly family members, limiting their ability to work. Many are scared of contracting the coronavirus, and some have rethought their careers and opted out of traditional employment altogether. They're getting by through a patchwork of help, State jobless benefits, federal and local safety net programs, help from family and friends. A lucky few like Josh Dorgan of Omaha, Nebraska, have ditched their workaday lives for riches in cryptocurrency.
5: So it was really hard sitting in my office making a few hundred dollars a day or whatever it was, and then, you know, taking a trade on break on my lunch break and making, you know, my whole day's wage in five minutes.
4: During the pandemic, the 31-year-old, who used to trade crypto on the side, began to feel increasingly frustrated with his day job. He's trained as a pediatric nurse and was managing a hospital dialysis unit. Last summer, he hired a financial advisor after his wife insisted, quit his job, and jumped full-time into the fast-paced world of crypto.
5: I do remember quitting my job, and then the next week, I made like $80,000 on a trade. Like, just in the first week, and I was like, okay, cool. I just made my whole yearly salary at my job in a week after quitting crypto. And that was right back when the market really started to boom, right? Since then,
4: he's made more than seven figures, and the family has been able to purchase a vacation home. He loves the flexibility of choosing his own hours and being able to care for his newborn. He also has more time for exercise and meditation, which he says he ignored for the better part of the last decade.
5: Now I'm like starting to take care of myself a little bit more too and like trying to be more healthy um, so that way I can obviously live longer just for my family and my son.
4: To be sure, many aren't so fortunate. In a survey of job seekers that ZipRecruiter did in September, many people said they're relying on friends and family to make ends meet. And more people than ever also want a remote job but those jobs remain concentrated in specific industries.
1: So that's another source of the mismatch. The people are, are holding out for uh, remote work opportunities which have exploded in business and financial services and insurance and, you know, and tech, but which are non-existent in, in other industries um, like regional hospitality. But now people actually have a realistic prospect of possibly finding a remote job. Um, and so people are, are, are waiting out for those jobs.
4: In part because the labor market is tight, people are also more empowered to be picky. About 65% of respondents in a recent ZipRecruiter survey said they don't feel the financial pressure to accept the first job offer they receive. And one final reason Americans are staying home their kids. Parents have pointed to the erratic nature of school closings and the high cost of childcare for their reluctance to re enter the workforce. Zach McGrath is the single father of an 11-year-old son with special needs. He used to work in TV and film production before the pandemic, and is now looking outside the industry because the hours don't give him the flexibility to look after his son if classrooms shut down because of COVID cases.
6: The the, the school closings, you know, and and even just the random four-day quarantines are like the sword of Damocles that even if I find this ideal situation you know, that is clearly not out there, that's something that no employer's gonna wanna deal with. You know, just for three days, I can't come in, I can't do anything, it's not gonna happen.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
3: So in a minute, I'm going to talk to the former head of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors about what's happening to the US labour market and just how this great mismatch between jobs and workers is going to get resolved, if it gets resolved. But first, I want to head over the Atlantic to tell you about another country, also Looking for workers. Russia. Bloomberg Economy reporter Anya Quinn in Moscow is here to explain. Anya, thanks for joining Stefanomics. Um, Russia is, is facing a similar problem filling jobs across the economy, but I guess in, in this case it's no mystery where the workers have gone, is it?
2: Yeah, that's right, Stephanie. So uh, Russia has long had a problem with its aging population because of low birth rates during the turmoil in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union um, but now it's got more things that are adding to that so uh, for a long time the um, it relied on migrant workers coming from poorer countries that were part of the Soviet Union, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, to fill the gap um, that it couldn't fill with domestic workers. But after the pandemic, that got a lot more difficult because traveling was more difficult and countries closed borders and a lot of those people have gone home. So before the pandemic, um, it was estimated there are about 4.5 million migrant workers in Russia, which makes it one of the top four destinations for migrant workers in the world. Um, but now we think it's about 3 million people. Um, and all that has been made worse by high death rates from coronavirus as the government has been reluctant to lock down the economy and um, vaccine hesitancy has been a big problem.
3: How is it manifesting itself, this this shortage of, of labour? Where, where do you see that? I know you're often, I'm sure, talking to businesses across the economy
2: Yeah, so like in some other countries, um, at first there were big shortages in agriculture, but now that's spreading across the economy. So retail companies are also struggling to get enough people. Um, Another factor is that uh, courier services are growing really fast and they would have been staffed a lot by migrant workers in the past, but because those people aren't around anymore, then um, people are shifting to work as couriers and leaving gaps in other parts of the economy. So, um, for example, X5 Group, which is one of Russia's biggest retailers, said that um, high mortality rates are causing problems for its labor supply um and rusagro which is one of russia's biggest agriculture companies has been increasing wages to try and to try and get enough people and um has had to try and automate some more of its work um as it struggled to find enough staff
3: and obviously one of the questions you know there's the, there's been a talk of labor shortages in lots of different countries and um one of the question marks is about how much is going to feed into wages and how much that will then feed inflation and make this inflation that we're seeing in a lot of countries not so not as temporary as, as people were, were hoping. How is that playing out in Russia? Are wages going up? Is that pushing up inflation?
2: Yeah, so like I said, Rosagro say they've raised wages um, up to 10% in some sectors uh, wages have been increasing more than that and that's definitely feeding into inflation and inflation here is um is a political problem for putin too because um it really hits living standards and at the moment uh it's how so high-, high is it now at the moment it's at the highest in five years it's about eight percent which is way above the bank of russia's target And so Bank of Russia has been um, aggressively hiking rates to try and bring inflation down. But so far, it doesn't seem to be having much of an effect. So this isn't just um, a problem for the economy. It also has the potential to, to slow down growth in Russia and even undermine Putin's popularity.
3: Yeah, if you can't get so, you've got, sort of, you've got inflation and wages going up, but also the central bank kind of slamming on the brakes, slowing the economy.
2: Exactly. And people remember when there was runaway inflation in the 90s and how that hit living standards. That means that it's much more at the front of people's minds here. And consistently in polls, people say that uh, rising prices are the biggest problem.
3: So one of the reasons this story had caught my eye was that there was some pretty uh, aggressive tactics that the Russians, Russia being Russia, uh, <laughs> there have been some pretty extreme solutions to this problem that they've come up with over the years. And I guess I may be looking to now.
2: <laughs> yeah. So earlier this year, prisoners were brought in to work on railroad upgrades um, for uh, for like coal transportation um, and that's kind of particularly scary here because it brings back echoes of uh, labour camps and soviet times where prisoners had to work in mining or forestry or railway construction so far so far that's on um, a pretty small scale but people are consistently talking about um, how to solve this with getting more prisoners to work um, in agriculture they were looking at getting students to help with the harvest and last year prisoners also helped with the harvest in, in some regions. Um, uh, the government has also looked at bringing in the army to work on some construction projects.
3: Well, you got to worry when people start bringing in the army <laughs> to, do, to do anything and I can imagine, yeah, that's sort of shades of some of those sort of forced labour camps and everything.
2: Yeah, and well, with all of those as well, I think companies aren't necessarily that keen on these ideas like I remember I was talking to one agricultural company about whether it would help to get prisoners to um, collect the harvest and they said there were a number of problems including that um, they might not be very good at it they might you know you need a particular set of skills especially if you're picking soft fruits for example and also sometimes prisoners run away which is another problem (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> no no i can see that and what about i mean the immigrants obviously uh it's part of the issue is that they're not coming back from from central asia and these places where they had previously come from to work in russia are there any efforts underway to to encourage them back
2: yeah so um they're looking at potentially putting on charter trains that would bring migrant workers from Tashkent and Uzbekistan to Russia, which would take several days on the train. And there was also recently an amnesty, which meant that um, migrants who'd previously been expelled uh, for various reasons will be allowed back in now. But at the same time, there's a lot of uh, stories in state media about uh, migrant workers and crime which looks like it's pushing the other way even if the situation now is pretty extreme.
3: Well Onya as we said that things are often extreme uh, in Russia but I uh, I appreciate you you telling us about this, uh, this challenge that Russia's facing, Onya Quinn.
0: Great thanks very much. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com slash techsf.
3: Now we're going to shift the focus back west to the U.S. and the labor market conundrum we heard about at the start of the program. And I'm I'm delighted to have joining us Jason Furman, professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard University and the Kennedy School of Government, and a senior researcher at the Peterson Institute in Washington, but previously chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers. Jason, thank you for joining Stephanomics once again. Um, the, The picture we had at the start of the program was an economy, a U.S. economy, in which There were job vacancies everywhere, it seemed, but no work for the unemployed. How would you characterize it?
6: Yeah, it's a labor market like none of us have ever seen before. We're about six or seven million jobs short of where we should be, but there's still millions and millions of job openings. And so overall, the problem looks more like labor supply than the problem we're more used to normally, which is labor demand.
3: And, of course, some say this isn't when people talk about job shortages uh, re, or you know, worker shortages, uh, that it's really it's not a shortage of, of workers. It's a shortage of good jobs that if the wages were higher, people would be doing
6: these jobs. Yeah. I mean, you do have to ask why two years ago um, people were doing these jobs at a certain wage. And now they don't want to do those jobs at the same wage, only want to do them at a higher wage. You know, the way I teach my introductory economics students, we would describe that as a shift of the supply curve. To get the same amount of labor as before, you can only get there if you're doing it at a higher wage than it was before.
3: And how do you think that's going to play out? Is it going to just play out in... Wages reaching a higher level or are there going to be, you know, are there sort of deeper skill mismatches uh, at work where the people who are looking for jobs are just not the same, just not the right people for these many vacancies that are there?
6: Right. So first of all, a large dose of humility is in order. Uh, No one Predicted that the labor markets were going to look nearly this extreme at this point in time. I certainly didn't. And so I'm not going to tell you I know for sure what it's going to look like um, a year or two from now. Um, If forced to make my best guess, I think there are enough temporary factors that explain where we are now related to COVID, coming out of COVID, and in the United States, the policy response to COVID that I think will get. 90% You ninety know, percent of the way back to where we were um, it just may take um, a year or two to get there but you know there's a risk to that and a risk that this is a more permanent change
3: and I guess one of the ways that we get from here to there would be wages going up and then inflation going up potentially staying up you know we had some Another round of pretty eye-popping U.S. inflation numbers this week. Do you think that is going to play a part, that we will see more enduring inflation driven by
6: wages? Right, another place where humility is in order. (laughs) Um, We haven't seen wage price spirals for a very long time. If there's anything that could bring a wage price spiral back, it is what we've seen with extremely high inflation this past year, and um, you know the way that's affecting workers and labor markets and businesses. So I think that's a distinct you know, upward risk for um, inflation at this point in time.
3: And I, I guess we should have a little uh, pause just to sort of reflect on on those latest inflation numbers, uh, just to uh, you know, put them in, put it in perspective for us. Just the, what happened in one month, let alone what's happened on the twelve month horizon.
6: Yeah, so in October, the CPI went up 0.9%. A bunch of that was gasoline. more expensive. That's something global but you strip out the volatile components. The core CPI was up 0.6. Um, and that's a real blow to the transitory stories, which had been pointing out the slowing of core CPI, projecting more slowing of core CPI. So I think this report, broadly speaking, says, buckle your seatbelts. You know This isn't slowing down uh, dramatically anytime soon.
3: And as you suggested, I mean, that's even after taking out quite a few things. I mean, sometimes when people talk about the core and taking out the volatile things, you know, for for some people, that's taking out all the things they actually want to buy on a given day.
6: Oh, yeah. Oh, politically, uh, (laughs) what matters actually is almost the opposite of core. It's what's happening (laughs) to food prices and gasoline prices. Um, Core is a good construct analytically, because it gives you a better prediction of where inflation will be a year from now. But to understand what people have experienced over the last year um, they 've experienced prices up six point two percent and uh, and they hate that
3: and I know we 're going to you 're going to start talking about humility again um, but uh, <laughs> when you have you know you 're sitting in sitting at Harvard at least some of the time and you know with your with that more academic kind of long term perspective, I just wondered what you are thinking now about the legacy of covid for the for the labor market, I mean when a lot of people lose their jobs and it was a really a lot an unprecedented number of people in a short time last year, we tend to worry about not just the immediate loss of output that they aren 't able to produce because they 're not in work but the know how that they 'd built up in those jobs which might be lost forever might affect their human capital and the human capital of the country. Um, We had hoped that that would not be such a factor this time, because not least because it was a relatively brief crisis, but also a lot of the most affected sectors were places where there weren't a lot of specific skills to be lost. Um, What do you you think one year on about the sort of human capital cost of that enormous spike in unemployment we had last year?
6: I think it's likely uh, meaningful. There's been a lot of long-term unemployment. Um, People really do lose skills. They lose out on the training they were getting on the job. They get dislocated in a certain way. All the evidence we've had from the past is that can have long-term impacts on sustainable unemployment rates, on wages, and on productivity in the economy. That's compounded by the fact that we've had low business investment for the last year and a half and some of the steps you'll need to take to harden against COVID. It's possible that work from home and doing teleconferences rather than flying places will make up for all of that. But I would go with the evidence we have from the past. And the evidence we have from the past says experience here is quite negative, there's a bit of hope. Um, I hope that hope tri- triumphs over experience, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on it.
3: I mean, it's interesting. this was something that that I had thought about for uh, some papers that we've put together for the for the new economy forum that Bloomberg's holding in Singapore next week. and uh, this sense of, of this idea of whether what the long-term impact on productivity and output might be of this crisis and whether it might be different from other recessions. As you say, you know the lesson usually is recessions always cause some permanent damage, especially to human capital, but also, the investment base of the country. Um, but you do have, you know, the International Monetary Fund and some other important forecasters now suggesting some kind of COVID dividend for at least some of the advanced economies, including the US. That actually, whether it's the infrastructure investments by the US administration post COVID or um, some of the productivity changes that you talked about, working from home, faster digitalization, all of us or maybe companies using automation more, but all of us using kind of tele, teleworking and all the things more, um, that all of that was actually going to put the economy, the economy at least, in a better place than, it, than we would have expected pre-COVID. Do you, does, does that make any sense to you? Or do you think that there's an, we're underestimating some of the negatives that you just mentioned?
6: Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. Um, we could have a COVID dividend coming out of this. Now, I should point out the IMF and other forecasters were expecting for the United States that we'd see that dividend as soon as Q4 of 2021. They had a forecast for GDP post-pandemic that was higher than their pre-pandemic forecast. Um, that's not um, going to materialize. So the schedule for this dividend materializing, at least in the United States, um, keeps getting pushed out. But I do broadly think that anyone saying that is has a sort of hopeful narrative about the present that we don't really have any evidence or data for. There's logic, there's theory, there's intuition, but there's no hard data. And that that's going to overcome the very, very strong data we have about what's happened historically when we've had periods of prolonged high unemployment and underinvestment.
3: Clearly, there has been great concern that during the pandemic, but potentially also in the legacy of the pandemic, um, inequalities that we already had are going to have been entrenched and even accelerated, intensified in some cases. And you've almost highlighted them in some of the things that you've you've said. You know the, the the. potential for people to lose human capital, having lost jobs, just as actually some of the more um, skilled and well positioned members of the workforce are actually enjoying more productivity, enjoying working from home, potentially even relocating to bigger houses outside the city and, and other things. So, you know, how do you see that sort of inequality impact of COVID?
6: Yeah, the last two years have been a huge blow to market incomes for households you know, towards the bottom of the economic spectrum, but a hugely progressive response that at least temporarily helped them much more than it helped anyone else. Um, of course, that response is mostly ending, except for money for children, which looks like it will last at least another year, I hope longer than that. Um, you have seen faster wage growth for lower wage workers than higher wage workers. We saw that before the pandemic. We've seen that during the pandemic so you know all in i think it will be roughly neutral for income inequality and you know has raised wealth inequality because we've seen what's happened to equity markets and the like
3: and finally I think we spoke at the beginning of the year when uh the history of the Biden administration was a book that had still all empty pages and there was we were thinking about how transformational their President Biden's economic policies might be and considering the economic yeah the economic impact of this one year and the programs that were unveiled in the first few months of the administration it's It's been a pretty hard slog. Um, I know you won't want to knock the people who are doing some of the jobs that you've done in the past. But, you know, where are where do you think we are now? and, And how are we doing relative to that kind of transformative hope that some people might have had at the beginning of the year?
6: Given the political hand the White House has been dealt they're running ahead of my expectations for what they'd be able to pass. They need to get unanimity for one part of their agenda, which is going to be really hard to do, but it looks like they're probably going to do it. And they actually got bipartisan support, especially in the Senate, um, for another part of their agenda. So they're getting more done than I expected. They're getting, you know, 40% of what the president wanted done, and he wanted quite a lot, and 40% of a lot is still... Um, a decent amount, but no, it's not going to change everything. Um, it's not going to solve climate change. It's not uh, going to make even preschool universal. So, um, but it's—I it's, think it's a good start um, for in terms of medium and long-run fiscal policy.
3: A good note to end, Jason Furman. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll be in Singapore with special episodes from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, including, among other highlights, Larry Summers on inflation and the dangers of woke central banking, the future of cities, and whether green finance really can save the world. So tune in for all that and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics from the New Economy Forum and around the world. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and the story from the US was reported by Jill Shah and Katya Dmitrieva. Special thanks also to Anya Quinn and Jason Furman. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stefanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.